Well, hey, if you have your Bibles uh, this morning, will you uh, turn with me uh, to, we're going to go to actually two different places. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 10 and Luke 14. So if you want to go to Matthew 10, and uh, if you're into this kind of thing, you can uh, just mark with your finger or with your bookmark, uh, Luke chapter 14. And so I am doing a message this morning um, that I have been thinking about and praying for a while. The title is The Cost of Discipleship. And the whole idea of the message is really summed up in this one sentence. Salvation costs you nothing, but discipleship will cost you everything. Salvation costs you nothing, but discipleship will cost you everything. So it's about time that I confess to you um, something that uh, for me, has been a, a secret for a while, and it's um, what my favorite movie is. So my wife knows, and um, some of you, when I say the name of this movie, you're going to say that this movie has not aged well, and you are wrong. This, uh, my favorite movie stars Keanu Reeves, as do all great movies. <laughs> <laughs> Citizen Kane, never heard of it. Schindler's List, get out of here. Uh, okay, of course, my favorite movie is the movie that is known as The Matrix. I was expecting like a cheering type of uh, thing. Of course, it stars uh, Keanu Reeves. He is um, incredible. And he plays this guy, Neo, for those of you who don't know. And Neo, he's really, the, um, he's really the, the kind of the savior character in the story. He's the chosen one, but he doesn't realize that. Uh, so my favorite character, though, is this man right here. His name is anybody? Morpheus. Thank you in the back. Morpheus, he is uh, played by Lawrence Fishburne, and he is essentially, um, he's the Yoda of the Matrix universe. So he's always, he has these, all these quips, he has all these one-liner tweets, and he, uh, his job, amongst other things, is to train up Neo to get him ready for this amazing calling that he has. And he has this quote that I just think is so cool that I wanted to share with you. Um, some of you will remember that he says this in the movie, but here it is. Morpheus from The Matrix says, sooner or later, you're going to realize, just as I did, that there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. Isn't that good? You're going to realize, just as I did, that there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. And I bet everyone who has been seriously following God for any amount of time can attest to that being true, right? That, that learning and knowledge is great and all important. But at the end of the day, what really matters, what really makes a difference is not what you think, it's what you do. And actually, Jesus himself, he talks a lot about this, that we're not supposed to be um, just people that are hearing all the time, but we're supposed to be doers of what he tells us to do. That brings us to Matthew chapter 10. If you found it, of course, I, I'll read um, maybe about a paragraph or a little bit more. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV. I invite you to read along, or I've got them, of course, on the screen. Here we go, beginning in verse 16. This is Jesus. He says this, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. That's an interesting phrase, don't you think? Shrewd as snakes. Like, what is that? Shrewd as snakes. 
Straight as snakes. Well, in, in the biblical world, snakes were uh, often correlated with wisdom and cleverness. Of course, you can think about Genesis chapter 3, but also 2 Corinthians. Uh, there's reference to snakes denoting uh, wisdom and cleverness. So be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Verse 17, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, his followers. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. So Jesus is preparing this first century, uh, this group of first century followers to, and warning them that there are coming persecutions for them. And then jump down to verse 21. Jesus goes on, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. So here he's talking about that the persecution is going to come from even your own family members. Verse 22, listen to this. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Isn't that interesting? But the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. So here, this saving that Jesus talks about seems to require perseverance right? Remaining to the end. And then jump to verse 32. Jesus again, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. Some tough talk, right? So Jesus here, he makes the astonishing claim that people's response to him is going to have to do with how God responds to them on judgment day. Verse 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. So here Jesus is talking about the interpersonal hostility that people are going to be experiencing even in their own families as they leave the family faith, if you will, to become followers of Jesus. Verse 37, amazing verse. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now turn briefly, Luke chapter 14. We're going to just read one verse, and then we will um, come back to a few more. Luke 14, verse 26. Jesus again, he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That's a pretty tough talk. Jesus was, um, I wonder if you can attest to this, Jesus was a terrible salesman. Do you think? You know, like pe people were always wanting to come to Jesus. Jesus, we want to follow you wherever you go. And then he was always saying stuff that would make people scared and run away. I've got a few examples of that. You think about Jesus in huge group of people that are wanting to be his followers. And he says this, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, 
you have no part with me. Right? Will you imagine with me, AJ, if the head of Scientology, let's pretend you hadn't heard that phrase before, and the head of Scientology at this big conference, he says this, hey, all of you, if you want to be part of this, then you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm just saying, I think you'd probably hear about it. It'd probably be on CNN, right? And you'd probably have pretty strong thoughts. I mean, that's a, an incredibly um, off-putting thing to say, especially for perspective congregation members, right? You know, uh, another, another one you think about, of course, uh, of course, the, um, the rich young ruler, right? The, this, this rich guy comes and he wants to be a part. All the pastors in the room are saying, yes, that's what we need. Rich people come into our, and you know what he says? You know what he says to the rich guy who wants to be a part? He says, cool. Hey, sell everything you have, give all to the poor, and then we'll talk. And then he comes and he says this whole thing about, hey, you, unless you, unless you hate your own mother, Unless you hate your own children, you cannot be my disciple. Sometimes I wonder how Jesus's ministry would fare in 2020. Do you guys? Like, I, I just wonder how he would do if he came, you know, because we live in a culture right now, if you're not familiar, a lot of the Christian church um, group right now is motivated by mostly, not all, but a lot of them are motivated mostly by numerical growth. And that's a, that's a church way of saying, just trying to get as many butts in the seats as possible. Right? And so, so, we, so what we end up doing is we end up shaving off all the hard edges because the last thing we would want is for anything in here to be offensive that would scare anyone off right? And so I, in my opinion, this is my opinion, what the result of that ends up being these like lukewarm, calm, safe churches and pastors that say almost nothing of substance simply because they're too concerned about scaring people off, right? But Jesus was so different than that. You know, people, people come to me and say, hey, hey Pastor David, is, um, is Believer Center seeker-friendly? Are you guys a seeker-friendly church? You ever heard that phrase? Seeker-friendly. Look, I want to be seeker-friendly, just not more seeker-friendly than Jesus. Right? Like, like because, because the way that I interpret this whole thing is that we are here to um, deliver his message. Right? And so our agenda be condemned, right? It's, it's all about what he would say to his people. And so we don't get to um, choose that. And so he has some tough talk that I think there's a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of Christians who would avoid talk like this simply because it ends up being offensive, especially to people who are on the fence. The, the, mes- uh, the, the message title that I almost used this morning was, Hate Your Mom and Follow Jesus. But how do you put that on Facebook? You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's not just your mom, right? It's your dad and it's your spouse and it's even, it's even your own kids. And you might read that and you might be thinking, it must be a translation error, right? They must have mistranslated the Greek. Um, nope, they didn't. That's exactly what it says in the Greek, that if you don't hate your mother, you cannot be my disciple, says Jesus. So what's he, um, what's he talking about? Uh, Well, let's read it one more time. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. 
Jesus would say this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now that's a shocking sentence. Wouldn't you agree? It's shocking to us in 2020, and it would have been shocking to a first century Jewish audience as well for, uh, for no other reason than these are people who are deeply committed to the teachings of Moses, right? So these people knew the Ten Commandments. Y'all familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? Um, I think most of you are familiar. That's kind of like the summation of the teachings of Moses into these 10 uh, laws that were given given to him by God. Uh, and so most of you are familiar with it, or at least the movie with Charlton Heston. All the people under 40 are like, I don't, I don't even know who that is. Myself, I'm not, I don't know. I just know people talk about it. Uh, but, you know, the Ten Commandments, we're all probably familiar with it, but if I was to ask you to come up here and say the Ten Commandments from memory, most of you couldn't do it, right? I'm, I'm gonna say maybe, maybe, None of you could do it. I remember when I was in uh, Bible college, you know, we were um, these seminary students. And so we carried around our big, gigantic study Bibles and co- Greek concordances like we were some brilliant scholars. Well, one time, one of our professors came up to me and said, hey, you guys take this pretty seriously. We're like, you bet. And so he said, okay, well, uh, hey, why don't you guys get together and see if you can manage to recite to me the Ten Commandments? And there's probably like six of us. We're like, no problem. One, honor. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. And six, six Bible students could not recite the Ten Commandments. Well, these people that are hearing Jesus, they would have been differently than that. These people could recite the Ten Commandments. And commandment number five, as some of you know, is what? Honor your father and your mother. So this is shocking that they have been going, all the religious people for the last however many thousands of years have been saying, hey, you all need to honor your father and mother. And then Jesus comes and says, hey, unless you hate your father and mother, you can't be um, my follower. So what's um, going on there? Let me be clear. I do not hate my mom. Most of you know my mom. She's here in the front row. She's Carol. And uh, if you know Carol, you know it'd be impossible to hate Carol. My mom is so much better than your mom, I feel bad for you. That's true for everybody but my wife or my, 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 uh, my uh, daughter. <laughs> Cover my bases. I do not hate uh, my mom. I do not hate my wife. I do not hate my daughter nor do I believe that that is what Scripture teaches. Uh, A few examples of this, Ephesians chapter 5 says that husbands must love their wives. Titus chapter 2 says that wives should love their husbands. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that we are to love even our enemies, right? So how is it that we are supposed to hate them if we want to follow after Jesus? Daryl Bach, he's a great theologian. He sums it up correctly uh, like this. I think he says it just right. He says, the call to hate simply means to love less. The image is strong, but it is not a call to be insensitive or to leave all feeling behind. Following Jesus is to be the disciples' first love, This pursuit is to have priority over family members and one's own life, which means that other concerns are to take second place 
to following Jesus. So what, what's happening here is Jesus is using the language of the Bible where uh, hate means in a lot of cases, not all cases, but in some cases in the Bible, hate means to choose against, right? It means to make another choice. Just a dumb example of that would be Jacob and Esau. You familiar with those brothers in the Old Testament? Jacob and Esau, Jacob was essentially the scoundrel right? He was the liar. He was the deceiver. And Esau was his brother, was mostly the victim of Jacob. That's mostly what he's there for, is he's the victim of his lying, deceitful brother, Jacob. And, and then when you go to Romans chapter 9, you read this really interesting thing where, it said, where God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Right, so what's going on there? So that is not, that does not mean that he just, God arbitrarily, for whatever reason, decided to love this one son named Jacob and hate this other son named Esau. That's not what that means. It means that God chose against Esau and instead chose Jacob to be the person whom his line would come through. So it means not to despise and not to abhor and to, you know, it, it means to choose against. And so when Jesus is saying that we need to hate even our own family, what he means is this, is that you have to be willing to choose God over everybody and everything else, even your own family. It's big talk. Uh, and let's read just a little bit more. He continues, he expands on it, which I think is important. Luke chapter 14, if you're still there, just going to do a few verses, beginning in verse 27. This is Jesus. He says this, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So he's talking about Christianity costing us something, right? And, and he uses some of the strongest language in his entire ministry when talking about what it's going to cost you if you want to be a real, true, authentic follower of Jesus, which is, it's not just someone who believes, right? There's lots of those. It's someone who hangs their entire life on those uh, beliefs. And so, so it, it's funny, by the way, um, we, we all hear in modern culture, you know, this phrase, like, it's my cross to bear. You ever heard that? My cross to bear. You know, oh, my car broke down and I have to take the bus, but it's my cross to bear. No, it isn't, <laughs> right? Like, you know, oh, you know, I got to wear a mask at the grocery store now. It's not easy, but it's my cross to bear. Listen, carrying your cross was a death sentence, right? Carrying your cross means walking resolutely towards your own death. Carrying your cross is walking, walking the green mile, right? It's your Christian faith costing you everything. And considering who he's talking to, it's not some theoretical, are you that committed? For a lot of these people, this will actually cost them their actual lives to follow after Jesus, but they do it anyways. See, it's tough talk from Jesus because what the crowd wanted is what the crowd still wants, which is they want a Jesus who will just come and bless them and encourage them and give them lots of money and success and popularity and great family and great friends. Look, that's fine. That's all part of the Christian faith. But Jesus also is very clear that your Christian faith is going to cost you something. It is. Following Jesus is going to cost you something. You know, another word for cost is price, right? Following Jesus has a price. And you, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, at some point you are going to pay the price for that. And he says, and his encouragement 
to these people is not, hey, don't do it, but he wants them to count the cost before they start. Right? He says, I just want you to make sure that, you're, that you understand what you're getting into here, that this is something that may very well cost you uh, your life. Uh, next verse, Luke 14, 28, Jesus says this. He tells a couple stories. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. So again, what's happening here is Jesus is saying that following him is going to cost you something. And he uses these two illustrations. The first one is imagine a builder. Imagine a builder is going to build a tower. He says, wouldn't he, before he starts to build, see how much the project is going to cost to see whether or not he has enough money to complete it? And then he uses the illustration of a king. He says that with kings about to go to war, and he says, wouldn't, wouldn't you at least scout out the opposing army to see if your army could uh, overtake the other army? And so he says the same is true with the Christian faith, is that there is, um, there is a cost, and he's encouraging you as a follower of Jesus or a potential follower of Jesus, he's encouraging you to consider what following Jesus might cost. And you might be thinking, so are you saying there's no benefits? Of course there's benefits, right? Like, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. There are benefits. I think, this is my opinion, I think that following Jesus is the greatest lifestyle that you can possibly have in the world. It's true. It's the best, but it comes at a cost right? It has benefits that come at a cost. And he really sums it up, this whole thing, he sums up in verse 33, uh, when Jesus would say this. He just gave these metaphors, these illustrations. Uh, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. You guys okay? Is this message going okay, sweetheart? You tell me if it starts to stink, you just give me a, okay, give me one of these and I'll land the plane. So Jesus talks a lot about what we would say is the cost of discipleship, right? That's a phrase that was made popular by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you guys might be familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German Lutheran pastor, wrote a book on the cost of discipleship. He was a man who lived in Germany and spoke out as a pastor against Hitler, and the, uh, the Nazis came and they hung him uh, because of that. That was the way that he died. Um, and so this was a man that knew something about standing for truth and how that might cost him something. And Jesus is warning these people, of course, that it's going to cost them their lives. And of course, for his 12 disciples, don't you know, that that literally happened, right? That, that for the disciples, they literally were all tortured and executed because of their faith and commitment in Jesus. One possible exception to that would be John. Church history tells us that John was boiled alive in oil and survived. Uh, and so they just banished him. 
so he may have died of old age. I, I, I just know what happens to chicken when you boil it in oil. So, but the, these people are um, literally giving everything that they have their entire lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, that is not likely to happen to you, don't you know? Right? In, in America in 2020, you are not likely going to be killed because of your faith in Jesus. So the cost the cost then in our current culture is much lower than it has been in centuries past. That's true. The cost is lower now. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost something. It does cost you. So here's, here's my point, and then we'll move on. Jesus says that following him is going to cost you. And his encouragement then is to count the cost, right? Count the cost of what it would take for you to leave everything behind, put everything else in this secondary position to follow Jesus and Jesus alone. Okay, last verse. Uh, We're going to go to Matthew chapter 8. I don't hear any pages flipping. Should we just read off the screen? Okay. If you guys have some sort of book, just do this. So feel good. Okay. Yeah, your phones. Let me hear the clicking. Okay, Matthew chapter 8, a story of Jesus. Then a teacher of the law came to him, Jesus, and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Wow, a potential new convert, right? Isn't that so great? Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Whoa. So Jesus is basically saying, hey, like, are you prepared to be a homeless person? Right, you prepare like, you know, all these people, they have houses, but I don't even have a house. So are you, are you sure you want to follow me into that? Verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, you guys remember this phrase, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Wow, so here you have, what you have is two guys who want to follow Jesus, but are clearly unwilling and unable to make the sacrifice required. By the way, the old uh, let the dead bury their own dead, if you think Jesus is just being insensitive and rude here, uh, this was an ancient Jewish process that could take up to a year, right? So he's likely, Bible commentators will say, he's likely just making an excuse as for why um, he can't come. And so I'm going to give you a couple things to write down. Uh, And so this is uh, when we follow Jesus and we put him at first place, it causes everything else to be at a lower priority. That's what I'm hoping to just beat into you lovingly this morning. And so because of that, there are two, what I wrote down is there, these are two sources of identity that you must leave as a follower of Jesus two sources of identity that you must leave as a follower of Jesus. Number one, if you're taking notes, you could write this down. We must leave our social identity. We must leave our social identity. Uh, Family, you know, is good, right? Uh, Family family is part of God's good creation. I am a family man. I have, there's no one in the front row right now that's not my family, 
right? I love all my family and we are close. We're close, close, close. We spend multiple days together a week with family. So I am a family guy. So that's why it feels extra intense for me for, to read some of these scriptures and say, Jesus says, I got to hate my own brother, my own mother, my own sister, my own daughter. So again, it's not saying that we must hate them, but it's that we must put them, no matter how hard it is, in second place to exalt Jesus uh, to number one. So we are not some cult that says, man, you can't call your mama, we're your family now. Like, it's not that. Call your mom, please. Call your mom. Love your mom. But all of your love for all of your family and everything, all of your other social structures, your family, your friends, um, your coworkers, that all has to, this is the word, that has to become subordinate to your love for Christ. What does that mean, subordinate? Well, you know, think about the military, right? If you have a subordinate, that means someone, you call the shots and the subordinates follow what you say. And so that's how it is with all of our other relationships in the world, that Jesus gets to call the shots in how I treat my wife. Jesus gets to call the shots in how I treat my mother. And luckily, he teaches me to treat them well. In fact, he encourages me. Did you know that the scripture teaches that I'm supposed to love my wife, the way, you know, love that reflects Christ's love for the church? Can you believe that? Carl, we're supposed to love our wives in a way that reflects Christ's love for the church. Like we don't stack up to that ever, ever. But I, but I don't confuse that with putting my relationship with my wife or with my parents or with my daughter as the first most important priority in my life. That's a huge mistake. Did you know that there are certain cultures in the world today that if you were to depart the family faith to become part of the Christian faith, that, they, that you would be cut off from the family. You'd be cut off. In fact, in certain extreme cultures, if you were to convert to Christianity and leave the family faith, they would have a funeral ceremony for you, even though you're still alive. They would get together and have people and would, would have a funeral ceremony for you because you converted into faith with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is just warning us that not everyone is going to approve of your newfound faith, right? Not everyone is going to be delighted that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Not everybody's going to, um, to honor that and to respect that, but you have to put Jesus first anyways. It also teaches us something that's really cool, which is that there is something deeper. Um, there's, there's something that unites us that's even deeper than blood, right? Even deeper than blood is this connection that we have as spiritual family. You want to know how um, to get the best of both worlds, though? It's to, oh, my mic changed. It sounds good. Uh, the best of both worlds is to um, have a family and serve God together with your family. That's the best, because then it's the best of both worlds, because then we're physical family, but we're also spiritual family. And as we pursue and live our lives together, we're not just encouraging closeness here, we're encouraging each other to follow after God together. Here's my closing uh, thought on point number one. I've just got two, don't worry. Jesus says you can love your family more than you love him, but don't. Nothing else can take the number one spot, not even your family. Number two, are you alive? Good, okay, just need to ask every 15 minutes. Number two is this, we must leave our political identity. I can sense you, I can sense you tensing up. 
Um, it's just like hating, it's just like the idea of hating your mom, right? It's not actual hate, it's making it subordinate to your faith in Jesus Christ, right? So, so the same is true that we, that we love our family, but it's subordinate, it's under Christ. Same is true for your love of country, right? Like if you live in America, like I do, I love my country. And you, I wanna say this, it might not be popular, you ought to love your country too, but listen, that, that all that love and all that patriotism and all of my political ideas, that all comes subordinate under my commitment and love and um, alliance to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Here's what I uh, wrote. You can, you can just look at it. I've got it on the screen. It's fine to be a Republican just so long as you're not more Republican than Christian. It's fine to be a Democrat just so long as you're not more Democrat than Christian. It's okay to be independent, libertarian, green party, tea party, dance party. Okay, I added that one. If someone started a political party called the dance party, I would vote for that. It's okay to be all of that just so long as you're Christian first and that stuff second. And it shouldn't be close. It shouldn't be that we don't find our identity in who we support politically, nor do we find our identity in who we oppose politically. And it's fine to support candidates and oppose policies and, you know, be active. You know, if you're into that, that is super cool. Just understand that that is your second, that is your, that is your side gig, not your main gig, right? That, that you are mostly committed to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And if in that, that leads you to a more progressive way of, fine, as long as it's secondary. Maybe that leads you into a more conservative way of, cool, just so long as it's second and the first love, your first and greatest passion is Jesus Christ and his kingdom. But that's what Jesus has called us to do, that we must hate everything else, give up everything we have, so that we can follow Jesus because he is the main. I have, um, I'm almost done, but Martin Luther King Jr. I hesitated to use this um, illustration because I think, especially in our culture, to, to reference uh, Dr. King or to quote him, we instantly go to race, right? We instantly start thinking about race. But Dr. King, you know, he talked about a lot more than just race. Did you know, he was, he was this incredible social activist, but he was also a very committed Christian pastor. Did you know that? And, and, and he always said, there's all these quotes where he said that his greatest and highest calling was not as a social activist, but it was as a Christian pastor. That was his greatest and most important calling. And that everything he did socially was just an outpouring of his deeper commitment, which is to follow Jesus Christ and to pastor people into that. And he said some, as a pastor, Dr. King said some incredibly unpopular things incredibly. I was talking to Marshall and Cindy and they said, you know, everyone, you know, Dr. King, he's like, you know, his words are like scripture now or whatever. That's not how it was. That's not how he had some fierce opponents because he said some very unpopular um, things. Because also, did you know this, that during Dr. King's time, talking about racial injustice was not popular. It's popular now, right? It's 
It's, it's, that's just about the coolest thing you can do right now. All the top books that are selling in, in the U.S. right now are about racial injustice. And that's great. I'm so grateful for progress. I'm so grateful that we're able to right our wrongs, to repent and to change and to grow. I'm not saying that. I just want you to respect Dr. King for doing what he did, when, and most certainly not because it was the popular thing to do. It wasn't. It wasn't because it was so cool and he was going to get so many likes if he stood up. Blah, blah, blah. He did it in spite of all of that. And he had that courage. And he uh, preached this uh, sermon, Alabama 1956. You can read all his sermons on the internet. But I just thought it's really important. It's a little bit long, but I'd like to read a little bit. I think it's, um, it's uh, appropriate now. I think it says, it's the, I believe it's called Paul's Letter to the American Church. So, and he says this. There are many Christians in America who give their ultimate allegiance to man-made systems and customs. They are afraid to be different. Their great concern is to be accepted socially. They live by principles such as this. Everybody is doing it, so it must be all right. For so many of you, morality is merely group consensus. You have unconsciously come to believe that what is right is discovered by taking a sort of Gallup poll of the majority opinion. Too many Christians are giving their ultimate allegiance to this way. But American Christians, I must say to you, as Paul said to the Roman Christians years ago, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or as Paul said to the Philippian Christians, you are a colony of heaven. What the heck does that mean? Colony of heaven. Well, we're going to talk about it next week. This means that although you live in the colony of time, your ultimate allegiance is to the empire of eternity. Isn't that great? You have a dual citizenry. You live both in time and eternity, both in heaven and earth. Therefore, your ultimate allegiance is not to the government, not to the state, not to the nation, not to any man-made institution. The Christian owes his ultimate allegiance to God. And if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to, st to take a stand against it. You must never allow, listen to this, you must never allow the worldly demands of man-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of the Almighty God. Wow. And, and um, as we close, I'm, I'm literally landing the plane here. I want to say this to you. Don't quit. We live in a world of chronic quitters. People, people, people quit on God, people quit on their kids, people quit on their calling, right? Let, let, me, let me tell you this. Everything that matters is hard. Everything that matters costs you something. Pastor David, I need an example. Okay, uh, marriage, right? All the married people, did marriage cost you anything? Yeah, right? Um, how about um, having kids? Did that cost you anything? Of course, it costs you everything. But the fact that it costs you something is what makes it powerful. Right? Think about Tom Hanks in uh, League of Their Own. Remember the girls just said, it just got too hard. And what did Tom say? He said, of course it's hard. It's supposed to be hard. He said, if it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. It's the hard that makes it great. And I think that's a lot like the Christian faith. 
right? Like it's, it's just kind of hard, you know? And I think especially now we are, this is my opinion, right? This is not scripture. This is my opinion. We in particular in this country are exiting a time when to be Christian was certainly the popular thing. My opinion that we're exiting that and Christianity is going to in the next 20 years become less and less popular. And so I think this idea of you counting the cost is going to become more and more important for us as following Jesus is going to cost you a little bit more. I still don't think it's going to cost you your life. I don't think they're going to skin you alive like they did in the first century. But I do think that it might cost you something and following Jesus is just a little bit tough. People are going to think you're dumb. You have to sacrifice. You have to overcome offense. You have to follow God even when it's boring and it's frustrating and it's scary. Like you just have to, but that's what makes it good. And so so you may be thinking, okay, so what are you saying? I guess what I'm saying is I want you to stop trying to make Christianity easy because it's not easy. It's hard, right? And like, it's, it's hard. You know, for me, um, my Christian faith has certainly cost me something over the years socially, and that's just part of the game. But my concern is that I'm, I'm seeing like this new generation of Christians that just, it feels like they're fine with it as long as it's cool, but as soon as it costs them something, they're out. And I think that that has eroded the core essence of what the Christian faith is. And I think one of the reasons that maybe Jesus harped so hard consistently over and over and over on counting the cost. Hey, this is going to cost you. Hey, this is going to cost you. This is going to cost you. Is so that he, he, we didn't make all kinds of these people who were like, I just thought following Jesus was only going to be fun. And I was just going to be like Starbucks and, you know, golf courses and stuff like that. And then they leave right? That right up the front, he says, man, if you're in this, you got to decide that you are in this for the long haul, even when it gets hard, even when it costs you. Um, so I went to a funeral this past week. Uh, a great man, Bill Carlin, he's a uh, wonderful, wonderful family man, served God for a long time, served this church. Um, and I don't know, for, for me, when I go to funerals, it always kind of puts me in a, like an introspective place, but I'm sure I'm not alone in that, where it kind of gets me thinking about like my life and what, um, what I would want to be remembered for, you know, and I think about, uh, yeah, I think about like when all is said and done, like, I don't want to bum anyone out, but you know, like in a hundred years, we're all going to be dead. You know that, right? Like even the kid, like we're all going to be dead in a hundred years. Just, we are. Um, and so what do you want to be remembered for? Like, what do you want your life to be? Cause you only get one chance at this thing, right? You don't get a, You don't get to live 90 years and do a redo. Of course, heaven, you know, all of that. I'm not saying that this life here on earth, you get one chance to do it right. And one thing that kind of bums me out is I feel like a lot of people, what their legacy is going to be, is going to be one of basically like, well, you know, I just kind of like jumped around from thing to thing to thing my whole life and then died. You know, that it's like, okay, and then you decided he was a, now he's a Jesuit priest for two years, and then he decided he's, you know, whatever, just all of these different things that change, but they're not, but at the end of their life, it's not like you can say one thing that was the driving force behind their life overall. You just can't say it because everyone's quitting all the time on literally everything. But man, if you think about, and I don't use this word 
lightly, that's tragic. It's tragic to waste a life by just floating around trying to find whatever's the easiest thing to do. But man, a life where you like actually follow after God, faithfully committed to God, where, where you chase after him decade, year after year, decade after decade, decade after dec- decade, sacrificing for your family, sacrificing for your love for God, trying to take care of other people, loving people the best that, way that you can, trying to live your life like Jesus wants us to live it, that's a great legacy. That's something that you can be proud of, right? And so, so <laughs> I'm going to stop, just keep talking. I keep saying things and then um, the, the challenge for you today is this, maybe this week is just simply this, count the cost. Count the cost. Consider and open your heart to the fact that following after Jesus might cost you something, right? And that, that it, are, are you okay with that, right? Like, is this, is this the life that you really want, um, to follow after him, even when it gets hard, even when it gets complicated, even when, you know, people think you're dumb or optimistic or I don't know, anything. Like, are you going to follow after Jesus um, anyways? And it's a challenge. And to, to think soberly about our own lives and think about, man, is there something in me that I, that I have allowed to take that first place? Well, Pastor David, how do I tell? By how you spend your time and how you spend your thoughts. Right? Like, what are you thinking about? Do you, you ever thinking about anything about like what Jesus would have you do in this life? Like, has that even ever come up? Or are you thinking all the time about, well, I'll tell you what a lot of people's legacy is going to be. Well, he chased money his whole life, right? That was a big story. Like big, big whoop. He, he chased after money all day. He woke up thinking about money. He went to bed thinking about money. And he spent all his time trying to make a lot of money, right? Nobody's going to care. And so, so just thinking soberly about like, what is the priority, you know, of, of all of these different things, all the different pieces that are you, your family life, your work life, all of that, you know, and where those land. And if Jesus is really at the top and informing everything else, then there are certain things in your life that you have to say goodbye to, right? There's times when you would otherwise say something. And now because, you, because Jesus is at the top, you don't say anything. Other times when you, when you would not say anything, but because Jesus is at the top, you say something, right? Even when it costs you, even when it's hard, even when it's complicated. Um, and so as we close, what I wanted to do that I thought would be fun is I wanted to read together the Apostles' Creed. The reason that, in my opinion, that these, these are like liturgies, it's called the work of the people. That's what that word means. It's just things that have been passed down generation after generation. The, the reason that they're powerful is because it connects you to something that's bigger than yourself. It connects you to um, beyond time and space, right? That, that when we recite this, we remember that we like picture our voices connecting and speaking simultaneously as the millions upon millions of Christians who have been reading these words and confessing these, these things for thousands of years. And so um, you can just read it and it's like kind of boring, or you can actually engage your heart to where this is something that means something to you. This is you confessing your faith in Jesus Christ. And I would um, encourage you to do that. It's three quick slides and i um, love for you to read aloud with me if you feel comfortable. Here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let me pray for you. Uh, so, so Father, today, we're just so grateful for you. And I want to pray for all my brothers and sisters in here, even the ones that are watching online. I want to pray that, that for us, you, you help us um, understand what it really means to follow Jesus and that you would um, give us courage. Because if we're being honest, it's hard because there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear of what following you above everything else would do to us. Um, but we pray that you would fill our hearts with courage and you would let us see with sober minds what it really means to follow you and to count that cost, to weigh, yes, I know, but the thing is, at the end of the day, what I want to do above all, more than anything else, is be a follower of Jesus. And that that would become real to us, and that that would, that would become seated deep into our hearts, and everything else would become subservient, would come under that. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your incredible patience for us as we figure out all of this crazy stuff. We're so committed to you, and we're committed to your kingdom. Help us to be a light to a hurt and dying world. And we say, thank you, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Everybody said, amen, amen.